Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Morning. Uh, so as you know, we've been walking through James, uh, sort of passage by passage or paragraph by paragraph. James has a very interesting flow as to the way that he writes, uh, which I don't really have time to jump into all that, but I, I do love James. I love his poetry. I love his flow. I love his thought. Um, but if you don't know yet, or if you haven't really been able to follow along, we've kind of been sticking to this one idea as we walk through James that essentially James's mission Uh, is that we would show our faith to be genuine, right? And so Pastor Ed has kind of labeled it making it real, or to to make it real. Uh, And I think, honestly, if I could sum up James in three words, it would be make it real, right? Because uh, that's ultimately his call. And and what's interesting, and I want to say this now before we even get into this sermon, um, it is very, very, very important to understand James is not writing to unbelievers, Right? He's, he's writing to believers, and he's confronting them face on about their hypocrisy. And he's calling them to be living out their faith in such a way that when the outside world and inside world, those in the church and outside look in, they see Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I want to preface, before I even get into any of this, um, as some of you know, I tend to get a little excited. Uh, I, I, I will say, I want to try to not get too excited because this will be a, a pretty confrontational message. Uh, and majority of you in this room are my elders, and I want to make sure that I'm respectful and appealing to you, and this does not come across disrespectful in any way. And so uh, if I do happen to get excited, please bear with me. I'm not, not trying to be disrespectful toward anyone. Um, but James's whole idea is that we make faith real. And, and last week, Pastor Ed, as he finished out chapter one, he kind of landed on this idea uh, that real faith produces real change, right? And I think that's, that's a fantastic line, that real faith produces real change. And so as we move into this week, I want to make sure that we're keeping that thought on the forefront. Because ultimately, James's idea, if, if real faith produces real change, then the call that James is giving us when it comes to walking out the faith is very simple. It, do it. Right? Like, I remember a guy that I used to work out with when we would go to deadlift. Uh, I would often be thinking in my head, and I'd ask him, he's a great deadlifter, so I'm like, hey, what approach should I take on this pull right here? And he's like, hey, man, just Just do it. Like, why are you thinking through all the ins and outs? Pick up the weight, right? And I think that's kind of what James is doing. Like, you're educated enough, right? You're you're believing Christ. You have the Spirit of God living in you. You have the Word. What are you lacking, right? Stop sitting down and trying to parse out and have big Bible studies and yet not live out the very thing that you're professing. Thank you. I heard one guy put it like this. He said that we need to be cautious that our actions do not, do not betray our words. Right? That we talk a big game in Christ and we don't follow it up with our lifestyle. And I think that's why John says that we should love not just in word but also in deed. Right? So the topic, we're moving into chapter 2 today. We'll be in verses 1 through 13. Uh, and the topic is favoritism. 
topic is favoritism, or as uh, the older translations would put it, partiality, right? Uh, and I, I titled this morning's sermon as Faith and Favorites, Faith and Favorites. And I, I want you to know the reason I did that is because the two are very contrary. They, they don't work together. Faith and favoritism are two very opposite things that do not work together in the gospel of Christ. And so as we dive into favoritism, before we really get to the passage, I want to highlight something that James has been doing really quickly. Uh, James has been showing us how God tests us, right? He shows us how God tests us. And let me clarify a point before we start talking about God testing us, just for any of you who may not be aware, uh, when God tests us, he's not doing it because he doesn't know. Right? Scripture tells us that he, there's, there's no knowledge that is not God's knowledge. He knows all things. Uh, he, does not, he does not need you to inform him of anything that you think. He knows what you're thinking before you think it. Right? He's the one that searches the hearts and the minds, according to several spots in the Old and New Testament, including Revelation. And so we want to make sure that we understand God isn't testing us sitting on the edge of his seat wondering what we're going to do next. When God tests us, he's essentially showing us what's already in our heart. He's showing us that our words might be very cheap because our actions do the exact opposite. And so as we followed through what we've gone through so far in chapter 1, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, God is testing how we respond to trials. 13 through 18, he's testing how we respond to temptation, right? Similar to Peter. Lord, I'm ready to die with you. Jesus says, yeah, wait till that rooster crows. <laughs> we'll see how ready you are. Peter swore he was so committed and dedicated until his life was threatened. 19 through 27, God is testing how we respond to his word. And then today, God is testing how we respond to others. So I'm going to read the passage. It is quite a chunk, uh, so follow along with me. Um, it'll be verses 1 through 13, James chapter 2. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the passage, and then we're going to look at three questions out of the passage and answer them with the passage. So this is what James says. He says, dear, uh, I'm sorry, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. 
For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Big passage, right? I wanted to read it all at once for a primary reason. Because it seems like James is talking about 56 different things. Right? Once he's talking about favoritism, then he's talking about love your neighbors yourself, then he's talking about murder and adultery, then he's talking about showing mercy. But I want to show how these three, or how those things flow, as I mentioned. James has a very, I would argue, lofty way of making a flow of thought. Uh, and so I want to I ask three questions regarding our passage. Uh, number one, what is favoritism? Number two, what is the problem with favoritism? And then number three, what is the fix to favoritism? So what is it? What's the problem with it? How do we fix it? Right? Very basic, very applicable questions. Uh, number one, what is favoritism? Now, I think this is pretty obvious. Favoritism is very simply showing favor toward uh, one or another people group. Right? It's that simple. That's ultimately how you would define favoritism. Now, what James is going to do, James is going to give an example of the rich and the poor. Uh, and, and primarily because in the first century, that socioeconomic class, was a, was a, there was a vast gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, now, I could go on about that all day long, but if I can be very honest as to my experience in this church, that does not seem to be an issue. I, and it's just my honesty. I have no need to flatter you. I think flattery is a terrible sin. I honestly do. But one thing I've yet to notice in this church is any distinction or separation between people who are wealthy and people who are not. Uh, in fact, Oliver and I were just talking about this out in the hallway uh, and the generosity of this church and y'all's love for one another uh, and, and for everyone throughout the church. And that's a very beautiful thing. Uh, but rich and poor are not the only two distinguishing marks by which we show favoritism. James is mentioning the most obvious, but that's not the only class by which we would show favoritism. It can show up in our modern culture in all kinds of different ways, especially uh, in our small town of Magnolia, because there's a lot of things that we're not very accustomed to, uh, as you would be if you lived in a gigantic city and saw these things every day. But things by which we will show favoritism is, uh, one, the appearance of people. Appearance is a very, very, very big thing, uh, especially things that I have encountered here, not necessarily toward myself, but, but toward others, especially as most of you know, I work in youth ministry, where if they don't know or ex have experienced something once, they're in this weird, terrified, shut it away, push it away uh, kind of thing. But appearance, we can often discriminate or show favoritism based on people's appearance, whether that's what they're wearing, whether that's how they're marked up with tattoos and piercings and haircuts and all various things, right? We can show it according to social status. We can show it according to family, the family that these or those people come from, right? One family has more respect in the community, therefore we show them more respect because they have a better reputation. And while I'm all for honoring people, I'm all for honoring all people. 
We can show favoritism toward people based on their career. We can show favoritism toward people based on their morality. Their morality. I think that's a common one in scriptures we saw with the Pharisees and the scribes, correct? The religious leaders of the first century often found themselves more on the moral high ground than others, and therefore they lifted their nose against every other such person. And I would honestly, if I could argue anything, I think if anything feeds our pride more than anything else, it is morality, self-righteousness. We can show favoritism based on religion, people of different religions, different denominations, different practices, whatever that might be. Uh, now, let me be very clear with you. Uh, I believe truth is truth, and it is not to be changed. And I believe that Jesus did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And so understand, I'm not saying we should all unify and coexist. I do not believe that. Uh, I believe that Scripture says what it says, and there is no, well, there's a lot of argument against it, but it doesn't change what Scripture says. And so let me, let me be clear on that. Nevertheless, we should be an inviting people toward other religions, calling them to Christ so they could be a part of the body and celebrate him forever. We show favoritism based on sexuality, very common one in our, in our modern culture. And lastly, and quite possibly the most offensive, unfortunately, we show favoritism based on politics. We show favoritism based on politics. Now I want to, I want to make a distinction as we talk about favoritism, I'm not talking about uh, what we would call cliques. It's not, favoritism and cliques are two very different things, right? I work in youth ministry, once again, and so do you know what I get all the time? Well, that youth ministry has way too many cliques in it. Well, yeah, it does, right? That's youth, they're trying to survive. That's every, when you were in youth, you were, you were in a clique, right? We were all clicky when we were young. But let me say this, as you grow older, do you know what you do? You still get yourself in, it's just the way it works, right? We will naturally be drawn toward people of similar interests, and that's perfectly okay. Where the difference comes in is, are you in one of those cliques where you're all facing inward? Or do you have space between you inviting people into your friend group? That's, that, that's what I would argue is a, is a very large difference. So I'm not here to talk about whether we're cliques and groups and things like that. I think that's perfectly normal. I think that's human nature, right? Most of my friends, we have a very similar interest. Favoritism is a whole different evil. And I would say there's a synonymous nature of favoritism. And actually, I asked Seth, uh, Pastor Seth this. I said, hey, would you say that discrimination comes before favoritism? He said, that's like asking, does a chicken come before the egg, right? I would say that, that discrimination, this is where things will begin to get offensive, right? Because I believe that favoritism and discrimination are almost synonymous. You have to already be on your high pedestal looking down in order to start to cast that kind of judgment on people to separate yourself from them. And so what's the problem with it? Well, that root of discrimination, which honestly the root of discrimination is pride, and pride is why Satan is no longer in heaven, and it's why we chose to rebel against God, and it's what we sought after when we wanted a throne over his. So I think we could say that if pride is at the root, we should probably forsake it at all cost. Am I right? Right? 
What's the problem with favoritism? Well, verses 8 and 9, I think James makes it pretty clear what the problem is. Uh, the problem is that it, it breaks the, the royal commandment. That we should be loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it's very interesting to me, and this is where, listen... Uh, I consider myself a conservative Christian, without question. I don't mean that politically, I mean that biblically. I do not sway on what this word says. But I want to also make it very clear, uh, we tend to have an issue when it comes to being in a conservative group as Christians that we start to believe that uh, there's, there's just these certain sins that are just so much worse. And, you know, I may show some favoritism, but those people out there, you know, they're, they're a whole different ball game. And those people that are doing this stuff, well, at least I'm not like this. And, man, let me make it very clear. James addresses you. Verses 10 and 11, listen to what he says. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. You cannot stand here and tell me that your favoritism, your judgment, your discrimination is somehow justified because they're a worse sinner than you. If I can be very clear with you, Right? We always want to throw stones at the sexually immoral and, and all those bad drunk people out there. But, but let's, let's also remember, uh, does not Scripture also tell us that, that gossips will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Does it not also tell us that cowards will have their place in the lake of fire? Now let's not cherry pick. Scripture's very clear. We don't... This is not repentance from this or that sin. This is a full-blown universal turning away from sin without picking any over the other. But the downside, you have to understand, when we stand in this place of favoritism, it's because what we've done is we've separated certain sins from others and gone, well, yeah, I might have this problem, but they're way worse than me. It's criticism itself that shows favoritism, and here's what James says about it. Listen, James 2.13, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy. Jesus speaking, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, do not judge others, or you, I'm sorry, do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching on Romans chapter 2, he gave a really beautiful example of this that I'm going to make about this long uh, because it's not in my notes and I'll go over. But he basically says that you have to imagine this as one who uh, has a, an, you're born with an invisible tape recorder tied around your neck. And your entire life, from the moment you can speak to the moment you die, that, that tape recorder is picking up every time you say how someone ought to live their life. And then when you die and stand before God, he will, he will take that tape recorder off that is now visible, and he will play it back to you and show how you do not even live up to your own standard. Much less God's. And yet you stand on a, on a high pedestal, you sit on your throne of judgment, and you criticize other people. You'll be held to your own standard. Do you understand that? I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that to call you to repentance. You'll be, held, you'll be held to your own standard. 
And what's worse is we get to this place where we start going, well, yeah, Daniel, but they're the problem. Right? They're the evil. I'm like, man, last I read, we don't, we don't wage war against flesh and blood enemies, but against spiritual powers and principalities in the unseen world. You've made people your enemy when it's, it's the sin that Satan has sowed in mankind from the very beginning that's the problem. I mean, do you really think your intellectual capacity is just higher than theirs and so you know how to follow Jesus and they don't? Because from what I remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that, that the unbelieving world, they're, they're not unbelievers because they're, they're not smart. They're unbelievers because Satan has veiled their minds from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Perhaps that's the reason Jesus says, man, pray for those who persecute you. Bless your enemies. Serve them. Love them. But we've taken a different approach and we've said, no, they're the problem and now we're at war with them. I think maybe what you need to be more in war with is the sin that indwells in you. Third and final question, what's the fix to favoritism? Well, I can tell you what the start of the fix is, the beginning of it. The beginning of it is recognizing your own condition. You're not exempt. You're not exempt. A couple of years ago, not even that long, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but if you know, you know, um, a huge name in Christian leadership, apologetics, like all the, all the big stuff, passed away and it came out that he had had multiple uh, sexual scandals and assault issues that had been going all around the world that, that nobody was talking about and they were trying to cover up. And I remember when I first heard about it, uh, and listen, this was his own ministry, that released it, right? And when it came out, I was devastated. And it's funny because one guy was like, yeah, can you believe him? I'm like, no, I'm not devastated about that. I'm devastated because if he's not exempt from the temptation, neither am I. If someone like him could fall into such a thing and cover it up and live it out, why couldn't I? I'm not criticizing that guy. I'm remembering how powerful sin really is, how deceptive and how alluring how destructive. So I wage war against myself, not against him. The start of it is recognizing your own condition. And what that does, it puts us on level playing ground. I think that's why uh, scripture, especially Rome, I don't, man, if, you know, in the 5 p.m. service, we're going through Romans. And I'll tell you right now, if I ever had my choice everywhere that I ever teach, I'm going through Romans. I love Romans. I do. Because I love how much Paul emphasizes that condition of sin that is within us because we need a constant reminder. Do you know why? Because the second you sleep on it, you get really prideful. You get really prideful. Man, you might put some sins to death and, and all the while you're putting those to death, pride is rising up and you don't even realize it. But Paul makes it clear, Romans 3.23, he says, For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now that's everyone. You're not exempt from that. You're in it, not even neck deep. Like you're atop of your head's not even out of it. You're all the way in. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter two, verse one, 
Paul says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And you go, no, I don't, Daniel. I don't do the same things. Remember, if you've broken one law, you've broken all of them. Just as they have. Which means in the eyes of God, you are not worthy. I don't care what culture tells you. I don't care what culture tells you. Scripture will tell you very clearly, you are not. Sin has polluted you. It has destroyed you. It has shattered the image of God in you. And we need to remember that every, some people go, that's too harsh. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul constantly tells them, remember that you were once alienated from God. In other words, remember what you once were. Remember what you've come from. And remember that the only reason you are where you are is by the grace of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. Now I love it. It's so simple. Not a single person of the earth is always good and never sins. Just memorize that one. And when you wake up every morning, recite it to yourself. Write it on your mirror. Whatever you have to do. But I want to note, recognizing your condition is the beginning of the fix, not the fix itself. I love how James starts out this passage. His very, very first verse. What does he say? He says, dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, in, the, in the ESV it says, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, why say that, right? He mentions Jesus at other points in the, in the letter, but why in this very first verse does he start out by saying, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Well, I think, there's a, I think there's a reason, because he's fixing to address our pride. He's addressing our pride. And what causes pride other than thinking for some odd reason we are elevated above other people? Right? That's what starts favoritism in the first place, is either we have discriminated, well, not either, we have discriminated against these certain people and said they're lesser because of these things, and then we've called these other people who are more fitting toward our agenda, and we've drawn them in close. So James starts out, before he's even going to talk about it, verse 1, you can't claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And show favoritism. Now he's the Lord of glory. And I think that's important to note. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Paul says that he was in equality with God. That Jesus was in equality with God. Now that's, that's an important note, right? Think about John 1.1. 1, 1, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In equality with God. Well, now, who on earth is God? Well, he's the eternal one who's been forever existing. He's the one that when asked for a descriptive, the only thing he could say is, I am. He's the one whose covenant name is so holy, we should not utter it. He's the one that Though existing in eternity past in three persons in perfect love and harmony, by his own grace said, you know what I want to do? I want to create. And do you know how he created? Not like we did, 
He didn't go find some metal and some wood and put it together like this table. He spoke ex nihilo. There was nothing other than God, and God didn't grab resources and put things together. God spoke, and there was. But this isn't like the Stoics, right? He didn't speak, and there was, and then he started a clock and lets it wind down. Scripture says in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that he's now currently sustaining all things by the word of his power. He's upholding it and making it to exist, everything. Do you understand there's not one thing in you, not one cell, not one, one thing in your body, your eyeballs, your anything. There's not one thing in this building. There's not one thing in Magnolia that he's not currently sustaining. There's not one animal on this earth that he's not currently feeding. There's not one person that he's not visiting and taking care of. There's not one uh, bird not being fed. There's not one lion not having food prep. There's not one uh, boundary of the ocean that he's not controlling. There's not one mountain that he hasn't said this high and no higher. There's not one star in our galaxy that he is not speaking and sustaining. There is not one planet in this entire universe that we do not even understand how big it is. That does not belong to him and that he is currently upholding by the word of his power. He possesses all things, he empowers all things, he controls all things. There is no power that is not his, there is no knowledge that is not his, there is no wisdom that is not his. That is glory that you cannot comprehend. Jesus is one with him. So when we say Lord of glory, I don't mean the guy had an earthly throne in a little robe. I mean the one who's enthroned in the heavens. Who possesses all things, controls all things. That's who we're talking about. What do we read about him? It's funny, Isaiah 53, 2, in the, in the prophecy, seven, 750 years before the time of Christ, you know one of the things it says about him? Listen to this. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. The Lord of glory. When he came, he didn't come in pomp. He wasn't exalted highly. What's funny, he didn't even go and hang out with the, with the people that could, that could really boost his, his morale, right? He didn't work his own agenda with the popular people, with the religious people, with the, with the political people. He didn't do any of that. He did the opposite. He went toward the social outcasts, toward the sinners, the tax collectors. Now let me specify something because what our culture does, uh, Jesus did not change to go and hang out with him. They changed to hang out with him. All right? So I'm not saying we compromise our, our, our faith. Jesus went to a people you never would have expected. And why? was Paul would continue to say in Philippians, because he came in the form of a man, the Lord of glory, right, equal with God, didn't consider the divine privileges as something to be grasped, but instead set them aside. And in setting them aside, he came down as a man, obedient to the law, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why death on a cross? Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 21 in Hebrew law, any man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. 
Do you understand the whole symbolism of Jesus dragging that cross to Golgotha? Is showing that as he's going, he's bearing your curse on himself. The Lord of glory, mind you, bearing your sins on his own shoulders and being crushed under the wrath of God as the propitiation for your sin, for your rebellion, for your pride, for your favoritism. Romans 5, it's funny what Paul does in Romans 5. He says how at one time we were helpless and so Christ died for us. We were ungodly, but God loved us so much he sent Christ to die for us and that we were once enemies of God and yet still Christ died for us. Romans 8, 7 says that our sinful nature is hostile toward God. Hostile. Do you understand? You were not neutral. You were not spiritually neutral trying to live a good life. You were a rebel against God's, God's rule. You were, you're, you're, you're committing treason against the one throne that stands in heaven. You were his utter enemy. You raged against him. And he bore that cross for you. Just as he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now please, for a second, let's return to that question in verse 1. Knowing all what I just told you. Dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor, favor some people over others? You say, yeah, Daniel, but they're just so mean. You were hostile toward God. Daniel, but they're so incompetent. They do nothing. They're just lazy. When you were helpless, Christ died for you. Daniel, but they just, they just smell so bad. And you were a disgusting wretch before him. And I say that in love. You give me one reason that you get to discriminate against anyone after what I just told you. You see what my goal is here is to back you into a corner. Just as, as Paul says in Romans 3, 19 and 20, I want to leave you without excuse. So you have one of two options. You shake your fists at the heavens and deny him, or you repent and you believe. We have to realize our place before God, because when we do, then we can realize the glory and the humility of Christ. Listen to what he says, Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Man, shouldn't your prayer list be full if you believe that? I love, you know, what, you know what, regarding all of you in this room who have some vocation or some talent or some usefulness in some form, you know what I love? Luther made something very simple when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself. He said, whatever your strengths, whatever your vocation, use it for your neighbor. That's how easily he sums up that, that glorious commandment, right? Whatever it is, use it for your neighbor. Whether it be your brother or sister in Christ or whether it be a non-believer. Right? Didn't Jesus say that it was the good Samaritan 
right? The, the one that they consider to be scum of the earth that, that did the deed and served his neighbor when he was asked, well, who's really my neighbor? Jesus says, even your enemy, that's who. So go serve him. Did Jesus not serve you when you were his enemy? This should bring us to two places. Number one, what Paul urges us in Philippians 2, 3, that we should always consider others as more important than ourselves. Listen, you, you live like that, there's no favoritism. Consider others, not just in this room, but wherever you go. Consider others as more important than yourselves. And then what Paul says in Romans 12, 10, that we should outdo one another in showing honor. We should be outdoing one another in showing honor. And so I want to close this with a final warning, right? We're going to, let me say before I close it, we are going to have a, a time of prayer because we do definitely believe that there should be a time of response uh, after the word of God because James, right, he calls us to respond to the word of God. And so we will have a time of prayer. But I want to close with a warning. Uh, it's, it's what I said toward the beginning, right? James is telling us we make it real. And did not Jesus even say, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? Remember that? Remember Matthew chapter 7? Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven, right? Do, 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 you should be living this out. And so I just want to make sure after everything's said that you make this real so that your actions are not betraying your words, one of the greatest image-breaking actions we can take, right? One of the biggest slights on the reputation of Christ that we can do is to show favor to favoritism toward anyone because our Lord of glory did not show favoritism against us.